2: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything.
3: Murder in Illinois is a production of iHeartRadio. Nine days after they were killed, Christopher Vaughn was arrested for the murders of his wife and three children. Vaughn's arrest occurred at 7.50 a.m. once he arrived at a Missouri funeral home to bury his family. For investigator Bill Clutter, that timeline... And the decisions driving the events is telling. I mean, they charged him, so they believed he was guilty.
4: And then just to rub salt in his wounds, they snatch him away right
5: before he's to to attend the funeral of his children, his wife. That's a pretty harsh sentence right there. Just punishing him before he's actually convicted.
3: Do you think that was intentional?
5: Sure it was. Yeah. They could have waited. They could have they were decent human beings, they would have waited until after the funeral, pulled him aside, and then put him into handcuffs.
3: Just in terms of the message that it would have sent to the media and the public, do you think timing was intended?
5: Oh, yeah. That was also the thing. That That's part of the, the media showboating is because the media was right there prepared to cover it.
3: Many at the time watched the arrest unfold in real time on the news.
5: Well, I mean, what a perfect state. And maybe they didn't tip off the media that he was going to be arrested, but they knew the media was going to be outside the fume because it's a high-profile case. It's part of the, the theatrics of the publicity, and there was no presumption of innocence. They decided they would punish him before he's even tried or convicted.
3: And to go back to that earlier point, because they knew the press would be on hand, they also knew that they could arrest him quite publicly.
5: Oh yeah, and they did. And that's what happened.
3: I'm Lauren Bright Pacheco, and this is Murder in Illinois.
6: Can you-
3: Once arrested, the prosecution made it clear Chris Vaughn was likely facing the death penalty. At this point in time in Illinois... A death penalty case was advantageous in terms of defense because of what's referred to as heightened due process. Individual death penalty cases were provided hundreds of thousands of dollars from the state for top-tier lawyers, experts, investigators, and anything needed to provide the accused with a proper legal team and fair defense. But Christopher Vaughn's public image was under scrutiny from the start, and his guilt seemed presumed from the beginning. Bill Clutter recalls seeing the initial stages of the case on television.
5: This was a high profile case. It was in the media, it was in the state journal register and it was on the news. I think CNN covered it live. They flew helicopters over the crime scene at the time. So, so I was aware of the case and my initial, impression, just based off the news coverage, was that this is probably a sentencing case rather than a guilt innocence phase.
3: The media immediately began to dig into Chris's background and history. What they uncovered didn't paint the best picture and only served to solidify his increasingly unflattering image to the public.
2: Christopher Vaughn was not a perfect husband or father.
0: Once detectives started questioning him, at one point saying that he didn't remember what had happened in the SUV. Now, while in the emergency room after the shootings, he reportedly was upset about blood on his cowboy boots. I mean, right off the bat,
5: the media reports, and this happens in so many cases where a person is really tried and convicted in the media before they even hit a courtroom the media reports picked up on some sensational facts.
7: Vaughn frequented strip clubs in Chicago and the suburbs months before the murders. He told one of the strippers he was single.
5: He he made two visits to a strip club and spent an enormous amount of money, I think over $4,000. And uh, of course, this is a guy who was making, I mean, he moved to Chicago to take a job that was paying him almost $200,000 a year which there's very few people that make that kind of salary. Those things really, I think, turned public opinion against him.
7: Mons Affairs visits to strip clubs and plans which did not include his family. As many as four exotic dancers are expected to testify.
3: The media's salacious covering of those strip club visits and other extramarital activities would later prove detrimental to Chris at his trial
5: up to that point they had the first major lead was the strip club they interviewed the dancer at scores so that was you know in between his initial interrogation and the arrest before the funeral they they had that and then they discovered the uh, the email chats with steve willett in canada and so that became one of these aha moments he's wanted to hike into the Yukon and leave his family. That's why he killed them. And so, which is all really weak.
3: We'll revisit those strip club and wilderness fantasies later in greater detail.
5: There's no strong or compelling probable cause that he did. And then it was Bob Deal's report where he he interpreted that the large saturated blood on the passenger seat belt had to have been from her bleeding onto it while the seatbelt was buckled. I mean, that's a logical explanation. But then after the DNA comes back, no, that's not how it happened. But they ran with that. And Lawson, Sergeant Lawson, who was the case agent who Deal disagreed with, used that as evidence that he staged the crime scene. He unbuckled the passenger seat after Kim was killed. And that didn't happen.
3: The prosecution's initial theory, which was based on the initial crime scene investigator Bob Deal's observations and report, hinged on the fact that the retracted passenger side seat belt, once extended, revealed sections that were saturated with blood. The prosecution's original theory was that Kimberly Vaughn was wearing that safety belt when she was shot, and that Christopher Vaughn unbuckled it to stage the crime scene by making it appear she'd removed it to enable turning around to shoot the children over her left shoulder. The problem? What investigators didn't know at the time of Chris Vaughn's arrest was that the blood on the retracted safety belt didn't belong to Kimberly Vaughn. It belonged to Chris. This will prove significant as we dive deeper into the investigation and the way in which it was handled. Bill Clutter believes tunnel vision, largely based on that initial theory, was firmly in place even before the crime scene was properly analyzed.
5: Sergeant Gary Lawson was driving that bus, but it heads with Bob Deal, the crime scene investigator, who pointed out all the flaws of this theory that he had, that Christopher Vaughn did it and never conducted a complete investigation, never delved into Kim's state of mind. Of course, later, the FDA would issue its findings regarding the the medication she was taking.
3: There were safeguards that were meant to be in place to protect people from that rush to
5: judgment. Yeah.
3: Did that work out for Chris?
5: No, not the recommendations of the uh, Governor's Commission on, on Capital Punishment. That report, I think, was released in April of 2002. And that's the report that retrospectively studied the innocent people who had been wrongfully convicted and put on death row. And one of the recommendations of that Governor's Commission was that law enforcement agencies needed guard against tunnel vision. And they defined what television is and it's this rush to judgment and you disregard other evidence, you know, such as Bob Deal's point was the bullet trajectories all support a murder suicide, and they do. And our crime scene investigator, Katie Hartman, who's reviewing Deal's work, she concurs with that and points to that as strong evidence of supporting a murder suicide. But in, in none of that was done. It was a rush to judgment. They had their suspect, and they were going to forge the facts to fit their theory, which is what Bob Deal's deposition describes, its it's classic tunnel vision. And that was one of the things that the uh, governor's commission warned was that uh, at play in many of these wrongful convictions that sent innocent people to death row. And, of course, at the time, Chris is facing the death penalty.
3: That tunnel vision, coupled with the emotional bias the media was fully projecting, became a significant challenge in defending Vaughn.
5: It happens in so many cases, and there's that initial outrage, especially once you you make the accusation that he did it, and oh my God, what an awful thing to to kill your own, these adorable children who were innocent of any of the marital conflict that they might have had. That's the part of it that people have a hard time understanding. The emotion of that and the media really ramping up and and pointing the finger at him. It just, I mean, he really had no chance.
3: Clutter believes that outrage proved an insurmountable hurdle.
5: You know, people can get caught up in the emotion of a crime and forget about the, the safeguards that we are supposed to have guardrails to protect an innocent person from being thrown into the meat grinder of the justice system.
3: And do you feel that that's what happened to Chris?
5: That's absolutely what happened to him.
3: Chris and his family started putting together a legal team with John Rogers, a defense attorney from St. Louis. Rogers brought on Bill Clutter as one of the investigators for the case.
5: I received a phone call from John Rogers that he was getting involved. And, you I know, asked if I would be interested if uh, it looked like they were pursuing the death penalty. A few weeks later, that I uh, traveled up to Joliet and had a meeting with Jerry Killian, who was the local counsel, and John Rogers. Uh, that was the first time I, I had worked with Jerry Killian. I had worked with John Rogers on another case, an attempted murder case in which our client had poisoned his his girlfriend with thallium, It's a rat poison that had been banned years ago. So we had worked before.
3: Because of their history, I was interested in Clutter's thoughts on Rogers.
5: He's a very thorough attorney and very thoughtful and how he approaches cases. John has a reputation of being a, a, a sought out criminal defense attorney. Started out, I think, in, uh, as a public defender, went into private practice and has enjoyed a, a very successful law practice as a criminal defense attorney. By the time we got together as a defense team, you know, Jerry had gone through the 20 hours of videotape interrogation. Of Chris and, and I just remember in, in that initial meeting, Jerry had some some doubts about Chris's guilt based on what he saw in the video interviews.
7: Why would she bring a gun into the car with the kids? I don't know.
9: I, like I said, I can't. I I can't see her doing that. I can't see her shooting me. I can't see her ever
5: shooting the kids. I don't know. When he was given every opportunity to blame her, he defended her to the hilt. I mean, he he never took that bait that they put in front of him, which, you know, if somebody were guilty, they would jump on that and be delighted that police were inviting him to point the finger at uh, his wife and he defended her. The, the entire time. I don't think she's
7: capable of, of hurting somebody like that. Then who possibly could have done it? One of the kids? No. I don't know. I, did, I didn't see her do it. I, I
3: don't know. But interrogation tape observations aside, like most of the public, Bill came onto the defense team believing Vaughn was likely guilty. And then he met him.
5: My first meeting with him, I went in with my ex-wife, who was at the time uh, working as a mitigation specialist. And I recall going into the Will County Jail, being introduced to Chris. I just was struck by how he didn't strike me as, as a killer. I mean, he just didn't. And, you know, I have many clients who do. And I really was it was one of those things where you know my initial thoughts of the case expecting to meet this cold-blooded killer who was charged and facing the death penalty for having killed his family and coming away from that initial meeting just there was an incongruity between the the charges he was facing and the person that i encountered in the will county jail I mean, he was very meek, um, mild individual, very introverted. The last person in the world you would expect to be facing those types of charges.
3: I asked Bill to describe that meeting and its setting in greater detail.
5: You know, the initial meeting was, wasn't substantive, but it was more of just trying to make an introduction with the client and to gather some information that would assist with the fact investigation.
3: Bill elicited details about Vaughn's relationship, difficulties behind the scenes of his marriage, and some of the issues the couple had been struggling with. Based on Christopher's responses, any number of recent events within the household could have led to the tragedy.
5: He referred to this as a perfect storm. A lot of things in the Relationship with his wife, Kim, were reaching a point where, you know, I mean, he had recently confessed to her that he had had a relationship when he was out of the country in Mexico. When he was interrogated by police, he disclosed that. But I was trying to make things right. I was taking her on a honeymoon this weekend.
9: We're going to go back to Herman where we had our first honeymoon and kind of do things all over again.
7: Who's gonna watch the kids?
9: My mom and her sister were coming up on Friday. Tomorrow? Yeah. They are coming to the house to watch the kids for the weekend. Kim and I, it was a surprise. I didn't want her to have to worry about any of the details or anything like that, so I set it up and I told her parents, I told my parents to kind of coordinate the details but uh, I was going to take her. Take her so
7: your mom and your sister? No, my mom and my aunt, her sister. Oh, her sister? Yeah. Were going to come up Friday. When were they supposed to show up?
9: Around noon or so, maybe. sometime. And
7: and Kim had no idea they were coming? I was going to tell her later today. Like what, if, get- what if she would have said, uh-uh, I ain't going? Ain't going to happen? I don't know why she would have said that.
9: This is, it was going to be
7: good. Do you think one weekend of sex with your wife is going to make her forget that you've been having sex with all these other women? you think
9: it wasn't all these other women? It was just one time in Mexico. And
7: it was a start.
3: Remember, Vaughn agreed to that interrogation, waiving his right to a lawyer.
5: There was just a lot of things going on. What struck me is is his characterization of this being a perfect storm. It's really an apt description. Now that I know what I know about the case, because she was under tremendous stress. She was taking an online class, was hoping to become a private investigator like, uh, like he had been in Washington State. That was their goal as a as a couple was to have a business together that she would take this online class get her degree in criminal justice but in the meantime she was experiencing stress-related migraine headaches and was prescribed topamax which we later discovered had an fda warning six months after this had happened
3: Again, Topamax, or topiramate, is a medication used to treat migraines and sometimes bipolar disorder. In 2008, a year after the tragedy, the FDA stopped just short of issuing a black box warning for the drug, their firmest guidance against using a medication, and instead released a strong warning that people on topiramate may be twice as likely to experience suicidal thoughts. But we'll come back to that.
0: Now,
5: well, that first meeting in Joliet, I just remember going back to Jerry Killian's office and my ex-wife raised the possibility that he could be innocent. Jerry Killian, you know, I had watched the 20 hours of the video interrogation of Christopher Vaughn. And Jerry gave an example where in the interrogation, the police are telling him that well you know the vehicle was parked under a cell phone tower and because of 9-11 we now have cameras on cell phone towers which wasn't true I mean they were lying to him to to extract a confession but the way he reacted was genuine and like he wanted to know what did they show why can't that one
9: guy get the video camera that he was talking about what, what are you talking about? I, I don't know what the he's talking about. The other detective or sergeant said he had a video camera of the whole deal in front of the truck in some tower, a video camera that recorded everything.
3: This remains a pretty compelling question. Why would a guilty person be so eager for police to provide what they claimed was security footage of the crime scene? And this began the foundation of the defense's case in support of Christopher. The next thing they needed to do was to examine the vehicle.
5: The aha moment was uh, when we inspected the vehicle. It was at the Joliet prison, the one in the Blues Brothers. In the opening scene where Joliet Jake walks out of prison, that's where the uh, Ford Exposition was being stored. We had our bloodstain expert, Tom Bevel, there, and he was interested in doing... A trajectory of one of the shots that killed the child that was seated in the middle, Sandra.
3: That examination of the vehicle became a critical moment for the defense.
5: There was a shot that penetrated the chest and it went through the back of the seat into the third seat in the Ford Expedition. It's a large vehicle, so it has two bench seats in the back. Well, this trajectory... When we asked the crime scene services for the Illinois State Police to lend us a a doll rod, and these are typically used to, to show the trajectory of the path of a bullet. When the doll rod was inserted through the bullet hole in the seat into the hole where the bullet came to rest and extended that doll rod, that shot was clearly fired by the person who was seated in the passenger seat and that person was Kim on. and that was really the ah moment when there was this realization that that this indeed was a, a murder suicide
3: in bill's opinion the bullet trajectory made it impossible for chris to have been the shooter there was also dna the blood on the retracted seatbelt and other problematic things about the crime scene and the way in which it was handled For example, the white terrycloth towel the gun was stored in was neatly laid out on Kimberly Vaughn's left thigh when her body was found. Crime scene photos clearly show its placement and that it was splattered with blood. For some reason, that towel was not saved as evidence. In fact, it was somehow discarded before the autopsy. This reflects an apparent pattern of evidence not pointing at Chris Vaughn as the shooter being discounted. And when the initial police crime scene investigator on the case, Bob Deal, expressed his concern over the investigation's nearly immediate tunnel vision, he was removed from the case. Deal was deposed by the defense in 2011 and shared his thoughts on the experience. Here's Bill Clutter.
5: Normally in Illinois, defense attorneys don't get to take depositions. But because this was a capital case, one of the reforms to prevent an innocent person from facing the death penalty was to allow depositions in criminal cases. And when we took the deposition of the crime scene investigator of the Illinois State Police, I mean, he described this rush to judgment, this tunnel vision. As a matter of fact, I I documented this in a letter to the, uh, the office of the executive inspector general and I wanted an internal investigation. When we got to the deposition of Bob Deal, the crime scene investigator, describes this pressure from day one. He described getting a uh, phone call from the zone commander convinced that that uh, Christopher Vaughn committed this crime. You know, he described how he was telling this commander that you know, that Evidence didn't support that theory, that he was looking at both theories, whether it was a murder-suicide or whether it was a crime committed by Christopher Vaughn. He had all the crime scene evidence uh, pointed to a a murder-suicide. And he describes how, you know, after expressing that opinion, he got taken off the case. He had no further contact with the investigators. This is classic tunnel vision. I mean, it really is.
3: According to his deposition, Bob Deal received a phone call in which then-commander of District 5, Captain Ken Kalpas, told him Vaughn was a criminal mastermind who'd premeditated the murders. And this call came before 5.30 p.m. on the same day the murders occurred. And yes, that's the same District 5 where Vaughn was interrogated for 20 hours in his hospital gown. Throughout the 116-page deposition of the former Illinois State Police Crime Scene Investigator, Bob Deal shares multiple and alarming examples of bias against Vaughn that started before Deal had even completed the autopsies, including an exchange with Will County State's attorney, James Glasgow, at a large meeting just one day after the murders on June 15th. Here's a quote. I got up to give my presentation and explained to everyone what was going on, and I believed then, and then believed this day, that at some point Kimberly had that gun in her hand, and the exact thing in front of everybody was, Kimberly was an angel, and there's no way she could have ever held a gun in her hand, and from that day on, I was totally dismissed as to anything that had anything to do with this case." That tunnel vision, along with Vaughn's apparent memory gaps, presented daunting challenges. Back to Bill Clutter and the defense team's strategy.
5: Yeah, I spoke to Dr. Uh, Terry Killian.
3: Terry Killian is a psychiatrist, and not to be confused with Jerry Killian, one of the attorneys on the case. The defense enlisted him to evaluate Vaughn's behavior and statements during his initial 20-hour interrogation.
5: Terry Killian was one of our consulting experts on the case, and he was looking specifically at the issue of dissociative amnesia, analyzing the statements that Chris had given. Of course, a big part of this case when he was indicted was his inability to recall certain details. Dr. Killian, the thing that stands out as I think about his report, was that he described that Chris had... Referred to his family in the present tense when he was interviewed by police. And after he was shown the photographs of his family and was shown that they were were dead, that he switched and and started using the past tense. He said that, that that was something that would be very hard to fake, that nuance of going from present tense to past tense when referring to his family. So he will be able to explain the issue of uh, dissociative amnesia and said he wouldn't be surprised if Chris is
3: unable to recall what happened even to this day. Dr. Killian wrote a 46-page report asserting his opinion that Chris's condition was genuine. It would later prove problematic, that Dr. Killian never actually spoke to Chris in person. The confirmation of dissociative amnesia and subsequent report was based solely on reviewing the hours of interrogation and other reports that were provided. The defense then turned its attention to the possible effects of the drug Kimberly was taking for her migraines. For that, they turned to Keith Altman, a principal of his own law firm, as well as a litigator for the Linto Law Group, who specializes in complex and scientific cases, including pharmaceuticals.
4: I've been involved in psychiatric adverse events associated with drugs for some time, including the Christopher Pittman case down in South Carolina, which was a 12-year-old who was charged with murder for killing his grandparents three days after they changed the Zoloft dosage. And several other SSR-related cases, Phil Clutter contacted me, said, hey, I got a situation I want to bring you in on. I was brought in, had a conversation with Jerry Killian, who was his lead attorney. And then I remember going down to St. Louis to meet with Bill and and Jerry and and some other people. And I was the one who also brought David Healy, one of the top experts in the world on psychiatric adverse events of drugs, to the equation to see what we could do here in terms of the evidence. First of all, the general capacity of Tokamaks to cause negative mood and behavioral disturbances Keith
3: happened to be ideally suited for the job.
4: Yeah, at the time, as I happened to be working on a <clears throat> topiramate suicide case. I was extremely familiar with the capacity of topiramate topamax of causing suicidal and self-injurious behavior. And the best predictor of homicidal behavior is suicidal behavior and the other way around. That's why you see so many murder-suicides. And the minute he said topamax, I said, I know what's going on here. In fact, in 2009, there's now a warning on all of the anticonvulsants, including tropomax, for suicidal behavior. And I was the motivating force behind that labeling change happening because of another drug I was working on related to to pyromathus. I had a lot of expertise in understanding the adverse events associated with the drug. It just hit a nerve right away, as soon as I heard it.
3: A reaction to the medication would have also been the best and most plausible explanation for a sudden violent outburst, if that's truly what happened.
4: She had had a dosage change recently, and that appears to be when there is the greatest risk of a negative outcome associated with these drugs. It's the same thing is true of the antidepressants. Uh, and you see, these, you see these effects. And as soon as I heard that, I had a strong suspicion. But when I was in St. Louis and learned of the ballistic evidence, I was utterly convinced that this could not have been could not have been Chris. And one of the problems is and it's been Chris's problem all along, is for people to accept the horrifying reality that a mother could have killed her three children.
3: The assumption that Chris, the father, was the killer also aligns more comfortably with the sentiments we hold as a society about maternal nature. Most people find it more difficult to accept the notion that a mother could ever kill her children, despite a number of cases where this has occurred.
4: But this is not the first time that we have seen this. Everybody probably remembers Susan Smith, who drowned her children in South Carolina. This does happen. Mental illness is horrible, and these drugs can cause these horrific behavioral changes to cause people to do things that just are unimaginable.
3: And that would also explain Chris's inability. He reiterated multiple times during the interrogation that he did not believe his wife could have done that.
4: Absolutely. Brain chemistry is a real thing. These drugs alter brain chemistry. They don't necessarily know how or why, but they do make changes and the changes can be profound in a very short period of time, and I always tell anybody I ever know who's going to be on an antidepressant, is make sure that your family watches you in the week to two weeks after you start or change your dosage. But so that is when the risk is most acute based on all the evidence that I have seen. People just have an expectation that, oh, oh hey, a mother could never do this for their children. But I submit that this was the drug altering her mood behavior, and I'll bet you're off.
3: And now the defense had their case. Christopher Vaughn's defense team, now staffed with excellent lawyers and expert testimony, was ready to make the case that not only did forensic evidence at the crime scene not match up with the version of the events that the police were reporting, but also the idea that Kimberly Vaughn may have been experiencing behavioral anomalies due to a reaction to her medication. And that brings us to Randy Steidl and the impact his high-profile case would ultimately have on Christopher Vaughn's. Here's journalist Joe Hosey, editor of the Herald News.
1: Randy Steidl was convicted of murder in 1987. He convicted of murdering a couple in Paris, Illinois, which is downstate southeastern part of the state near Indiana. He and his co-defendant, Herb Whitlock, were sentenced to death.
3: Steidel appealed his wrongful conviction for more than a decade and in doing so exposed a trail of lies and corruption that ran through multiple layers of government and law enforcement in Illinois. He was freed in 2004 and charges against him dismissed, citing that exculpatory evidence had been purposely withheld at trial.
1: Steidel had two execution days before he was taken off death row. He was ultimately freed from prison and sued a number of law enforcement officials and the state's attorney and was granted a $6 million judgment.
3: At the time of his release, Steidel was the 17th person to be released for wrongful conviction who'd been on death row in Illinois, something that resonated and resulted in active reform.
1: There was a moratorium on the death penalty in Illinois, and it was later abolished after a relatively large number of wrongful convictions were revealed.
3: In 2011, the same year Illinois abolished the death penalty, Steidel settled a $2.5 million lawsuit against the Illinois State Police, and in 2013 settled an additional lawsuit against Edgar County Police for $3.5 million. One of the defendants named in Steidel's case against the Illinois State Police Captain Ken Kalpas, the same commander of District 5 who'd called crime scene investigator Bob Deal the day the Vaughn family was killed, theorizing Vaughn was a criminal mastermind who'd premeditated the murders. Steidel accused Kalpas of working to keep him in prison, even after it became apparent there was not enough evidence to substantiate his conviction. In
1: 2004, Ken Kalpas was brought in to investigate, I believe there was a captain with the state police at the time. From what I read, he tried to orchestrate an overhear shortly before Seidel was to be released from prison and overhear with another prisoner trying to implicate him in the murder.
3: So an overhear is that he would have had another inmate try to tape a confession?
1: Yeah, another inmate would wear a wire and try to record Mr. Seidel saying something that would implicate him in the murder.
3: When the death penalty was abolished, Chris Vaughn and other Illinois prisoners who were given the benefit of heightened due process to prevent a death sentence were stripped of the funding and additional money provided for their defense by the state. So in 2011, Chris's legal team was defunded and dismantled, and he was assigned a public defender for his 2012 trial. By this point in my research, I'd reached out to Kimberly's family multiple times, and other than a brief initial text exchange with Del Phillips, her father, received no responses to my requests. I'd established strong connections with Christopher Vaughn's parents, Gail and Pierre, and multiple members of his family. In addition to gathering the insights of journalists, investigators, and other experts, I prioritized focusing on the sole survivor of the Vaughn family murders. Initially, Chris and I corresponded through mailed letters. My intention was to open a line of communication before visiting him in person. And then COVID and lockdown hit. Because Chris felt phone calls were more invasively monitored by both staff and other inmates, we settled into a steady stream of emails routed through a private company, the Department of Corrections, contracts to link incarcerated individuals with family and friends. While our interactions were screened, we were able to discuss many intimate details about the murders, Kim, and their marriage without any overt censorship. While initially awkward, I slowly cultivated an authentic rapport with Chris and in doing so earned his trust, but it was a sensitive process, as this early email reflects. Quote, Lauren, sorry for not having written sooner. I keep writing, rewriting, and discarding email. I'm certainly out of practice trying to get my thoughts expressed in written word. Truthfully, I'm a bit apprehensive. I have not spoken about this because I was and am convinced it will do no good. I was told I would be convicted because I was alive. Someone needed to be held accountable, and nothing I could do would change that. I have no reason to believe differently now. Unquote.  ¶
6: ¶ Does he say tonight, will my ring tonight? ¶ Careful thoughts tonight by the day ¶ Can't find love tonight, wind blows cold tonight ¶ Does he hide tonight away from day?
3: Coming up on the next Murder in Illinois... Christopher Vaughn is put on trial.
2: The prosecutors put up a big shock and awe performance. They showed pictures of, of the children lying dead in the seats. They showed pictures of Kimberly. It was terrible.
3: And more damning revelations drop.
6: He was lying to people about being married. He was lying to people about having a child.
1: When you're in jail for murdering your family and you're writing poems about a stripper That's probably not a great optic.
6: Call this fee to my.
3: Illinois is a production of iHeartRadio. Executive producers are Lauren Bright Pacheco and Taylor Chicoine. Written by Lauren Bright Pacheco and Matthew Riddle. Story editing by Matthew Riddle. Editing and sound design by Evan Tyre and Taylor Shacoin. Featuring music by Cicada Rhythm with new compositions engineered and mixed by Evan Tyre and Taylor Shacoin. Archived news reports provided by WGN. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get the stories that matter to you
8: That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
2: With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality.